it's preparing. Now, hopefully it won't give us a hassle, but I got to be honest, it doesn't always work. It's all good. Either way, we live over here. We back. And then do you want to record it on your end? Absolutely. I have, I'm recording it over here and I'm going to do your intro. All right. Make sure you click record because this still doesn't say recording yet. Oh, here we go. Live producer. Okay, here we go. Rendo Jacob. And I'm going to have my Dios meal. Alright, we're live, so we can start whenever you want and we can record and you can share with me later. Alright, so we back then on the Young Untouchable Family Podcast Show. I'm your host, Lorenzo. And tonight we sitting down with Bridget Arusso. Now, Bridget helps conscious CEOs, coaches, and consultants to increase their income and their impact and total integrity. She helps them to elevate their mindset, their strategy, and their leadership so that they can earn an abundant living while making a positive impact on people and planet. Her business model is grounded in equity, inclusion, and real social impact. She's involved in global social entrepreneurship initiatives that center and create opportunity for people of color and Latinx communities. She is half Puerto Rican and half Italian and speaks Spanish fluently. She has taught entrepreneurial leaderships and designed business programs at UC Berkeley over eight years and has assisted hundreds of entrepreneurs around the world. Welcome, my guest, Bridget Arusso. Thank you for having me, Lorenzo. I'm excited to talk with you tonight. Oh, I'm I'm very honored as well. Welcome, welcome. So, what we always do is we start from the bottom, work our well ourselves up to the top. We definitely like growing in our conversations, although we've already been speaking a little bit some before. So, we sure I, were. <laughs> I I definitely know you have a well a well wish of deep information and knowledge to share with everyone tonight including myself so just to introduce yourself more uh tell everybody who you are where you from and even more so what are you the boss of oh my lord that's a big question okay um who i am i am a disruptor, someone that believes deeply that all human beings have the capacity to succeed and have an amazing potential in this world. And so I'm here to connect people, accelerate their journey to success. And I'm all about other people succeeding. That makes me successful. That's what brings me joy. Um, I'm from New York City. I am very direct. I talk with my hands. Uh, As you mentioned, I'm half Puerto Rican. I'm half Italian. So as a result of that, um, I'm very no bullshit. People know that about me. Um, I love to have just honest, candid, real conversations about really uncomfortable shit that people like to squirm around or avoid talking about, like bias and racism in the business sector or how to make this world more 
truly equitable and truly abundant for all people, not just for some people, which is the conversation that I'm always trying to bring into the space of business. Um, and I'm just really excited to get to talk to you tonight. You commented on one of my Facebook lives and just something about the way you posted energetically was just so like a pop for me of like, I just felt your spirit and there was just so much like confidence, but just, I don't know. There was just something so energetic about you just from your words that I was like, I want to have a conversation with this guy. And it's rare that it's just like one comment gets me to that. Usually it's like a bunch of comments or a couple of exchanges, but like you made one comment and I was like, I have to talk to this man. <laughs> I just want to have a conversation with him. So, um, yeah. Perfect. So I'm really perfect. to be here. Awesome. Awesome. That I really appreciate those honest words of from yourself like and I know they real and authentic because that is my intentions like I've told you off screen and before and everyone knows you can read about me I'm a conversational magician so being able to inflect and project my energy and my intentions through this screen or this computer or internet has been something I've attempted to work on and I continue to work and see progression and so I appreciate that that was definitely my intention so yay yeah you already I think you shared a little bit about your story there and it just made me go "Mm, I love how you own your story and you're just so open to share it you know and that's I think part of why I felt connected like a connection with you um because I know that telling our stories are through our own journey and our own lens of our experience is what's really empowering. You know, other people can tell this story and what they think our journey was, but when we tell our own story and who we are and where we've been and where we're headed, it's totally different and it creates a really big impact. So. Okay. Well, let's get some more deep into your story. So you are a graduate of UC Berkeley. But I taught there, but I didn't go there. Oh, okay. So where did where did you graduate from? So I went to a very fancy school in New York called Columbia University. Okay. And I got a very fancy degree in public policy, and so I spent like a um. So tell me a little bit, yeah, you want me to tell you a little bit about the story of where I went to school and how I got to where I am now? Yeah, tell me. Just like the winding, the yeah, winding, winding. <laughs> absolutely. I want to, I want to know, because this is, this is what I grasp from you, even from your introduction, from even our small talks before and right even now that you are like a rebel, you're out in the front, you a disruptor, so to be from a school that is high in echelon like Columbia, I would want to know personally and to set the stage of how did you get to being so disruptive at the same time completing all of those studies? I mean, you're you're articulate. I mean, did you complete college? That's a good question. So 
when I started college, I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I went to a local university for undergrad. And it was because my dad basically said, like, if you're going to go to grad school, don't worry about where you go to undergrad because it's going to be a waste of money and no one's going to care where you went to undergrad if you plan on going to grad school. So I picked a small local college and I, I did my work, but I also... I'm not going to run for public office ever. So I smoked plenty and I partied plenty and I did plenty of things in college and I still managed to get good grades because the school wasn't that academically like rigorous. Then I wanted to go to Columbia University to do my master's at the time and I didn't get in right away. That's the true story that doesn't, a lot of people don't know about me. Like I didn't get into the university I wanted to get into. I got a letter saying, we think you're great, but we're going to put you on a wait list because you don't have enough work experience yet and you don't quite meet the criteria for the program because I hadn't done any um, internship or overseas work yet and that was what the program required. So that's where I started out being a disruptor where I just realized like I'm not going to take no for an answer and I pushed to get an appointment with the dean and I basically begged her to let me in and I promised her that I would take my education and do something great in the world. At the time, I wanted to do like international development work in, in, in countries that were underdeveloped. And I believed very much in the mission to serve other people. And I was very passionate. And I, and I basically pitched and sold myself into the school when I technically didn't make the criteria. And I mean, I was in her office for like a good long time, kind of like finagling the conversation and, and like making a case for myself and kind of going around and around around why I would be a great student, even though I wasn't quite ready. And then finally, I think she just wanted to get me out of her office and she was just like, fine, fine. I'll just like, I'll take you off the wait list and I'll let you into the program. But you know, you need to prove yourself and show me that you're serious. So I started the program and I immediately was like, what the fuck? Like, why did I do this? Like, I did not like it at all. I hated studying public finance and there was all this like statistics and I'm not into the math and the data and I was losing my mind. Like I'm really into social sciences and communication and all that stuff. And I was like in torture zone. I was like, please don't make me do this. And I wound up paying people to help me with my public finance courses because I was like stuck and lost in the spreadsheets. And then halfway through, I was just like, what am I doing? What am I doing in this fancy ass private university up in upper Manhattan. I'm from Queens. I like grew up in a small working class neighborhood. I didn't felt feel like I fit in at this academic institution. And then on top of it, I felt like everyone was so arrogant. And so like, Oh, when I was like building water systems in Africa for the poor children, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, Oh, Oh, you're a little bit of a, mm, and I don't really get along with you, but I have to smile and be nice because like, this is my school community. And so I always felt a little bit like I, I got in, but I didn't quite fit in. And so halfway through, I was like, I got to take a break from this. Like, this is not the real world. And then I remember meeting David Dinkins, who was our mayor at the time, was the first black mayor at the time. And he was really cool. And I had a conversation with him in the hallway. And then I talked to some other professors just about like what was going on in the world. And I was like, I got to get out of this university and figure out what's going on in the world. So I stopped my studies and I picked up and I went to Guatemala halfway through my graduate studies. And I remember getting in a lot of trouble because I was supposed to only go for two months for the summer. And I got very, very, very deeply, deeply involved in an indigenous organization doing grassroots work with farming communities, like way outside of any major city in Guatemala. I was working in very remote communities, traveling on the back of pickup trucks with indigenous workers and indigenous leaders. And I was the only, not only the only 
white person that they'd ever brought, but the only non-indigenous person that they had ever brought with them to do work in these communities. For whatever reason, they trusted me. There was a deep connection right away, and I got really, really involved there, and I didn't want to come back. I, I don't know what it is. Every time I think about this time in my life, like, I just knew... I knew when I was there and I was working with those people that like, this was the source of my wisdom. Like this was like, I'm supposed to be here. This is really, really important. And going back to New York and going back to this fucking school and this stupid degree program is just really not relevant right now. So I decided to stay. And then I wrote a letter to the Dean and then I got a nasty letter back. And I was like, you know what? I don't know what to tell you. I'm not coming back right now. So I stayed for another four months I wound up staying in Guatemala for six months, um, living and working among these indigenous communities and really understanding like, like we live in a fucking bubble here in America. Like we really live in a bubble. Like we really have no clue what other people's life experience is like. We're so fucking privileged. We're so insulated. We're so brainwashed through the media. And being there for me was like, I could actually smell and feel like what the rest of the world was like. And I didn't want to leave. You know, I felt like, like a sense of just liberation and, and I was so happy. And then I did have to come back at some point, right? I had to leave. And I went through so much when I was there. I have so many stories about like near-death experiences with giardia and illnesses. And I mean, I was all over the place by myself. You know, I wasn't with like a group of other gringas or white people. And I was just me in this indigenous organization, and then I wound up coming back to New York. And then I remember just thinking, like, what the fuck? What what all the actual fuck is this? Like, I had such a disconnect from my friends and my life back in New York that when I came back the first time, I had a gold diamond tooth because indigenous women put it in my tooth. And I had my head wrapped in a purple scarf. And I used to be, like, wearing all black and Miss Slick. And I came back with, like, all these skirts and scarves and a diamond in my tooth and all this shit. And they were like, what the fuck happened to you? And I was like this is who I am, you know? And I, I, I felt like reconnected with who I was as a Latina woman. I spoke Spanish fluently. Like I felt my grandmother's spirit with me when I was there. Like I felt, I felt like I was myself, you right. know, I could be myself. And then I came back to New York and then I didn't fit in again. Okay. And then I had to go back to grad school and then it was a mess because I was bored with it and I just couldn't wait to go back out in the real world again. So I couldn't wait to finish my studies and just finish bullshit classes. It was like, just finish these classes. Just give me a, a grade so I can be released from this institution. And I kept meeting public advocates and people in the welfare to work programs and, and politicians and just listening and listening and just thinking like, this is a freaking machine. It's all just made up. It's all just bullshit. All the policies and all the things, they're all just these walking, talking people that are just talking bullshit. Yeah. You know, because they, they taught us how to analyze it all. And I'm like, you could take the same piece of policy, like welfare to work and be like, it's the greatest thing for black people ever. All the black people are going to get off welfare and everyone's going to have dope jobs and everyone's going to get careers and they're going to get college money. And like, they made it sound amazing. Right. right. And all these people are like, yeah, the welfare to work. And then they would teach us how to like dissect it and analyze what the policy actually was and how it was actually impacting young black women that were trying to go back to school to become nurses and have a real career. And they were like, Oh no, that, that, that path is not a, a that's not an approved path of study in this program. These are the paths of study. And it was like janitorial services. 
So welfare to work was taking like a young black mother who's really smart, who wants to go to school for nursing to become like a high level nurse at a really great hospital. No, you can't. That that doesn't fit with the program. The funds we give you don't go for that. But you can join over here this janitorial services, house cleaning services program. And then you qualify for the welfare to work monies. And so we started to like understand the policy and how biased it was and how broken and wasn't working, but like it sounded great on paper. Right. And all these, right. so, so then I started to understand like all the bullshit and be like, what did I get into? Like, I don't want to be in this career. I don't want to work in government. I don't want, I can't do this. I can't be one of these people that walks around making shit up. What did, but did you, did you, did you graduate at the highest of your class? Like, where did you graduate or you, you quit? I graduated okay. late. So I took an okay. extra entire term. So because of the six months I took off in Guatemala, I was not, I did not graduate with my class. I had a whole extra term and then I got good enough grades. But the reason I got good enough grades was they allowed me to switch into a slightly different program out of the public administration focus into like an international affairs focus. And I got to focus on international human rights. Mm. So then I got a little bit more interested in my studies because I was in like, um, I was in a special group of students and we were studying slavery in Mauritia and the Sudan. And we were studying um, civil rights movements in, in the developing world. And we were studying grassroots programs in uh, um, all parts of Africa. I was working with someone that came to work with me around sustainability work, and I was really more interested in that. So thankfully, I was able to make a deal with the administration to like kind of pivot a little at school so that I could work on projects that I could, you know, care about enough to finish the work and get my degree. So the last term was pretty cool. I got to do some cool stuff, and then I finished, and then I got recruited by, of all things, a Catholic organization to go to Peru okay. to do development work, to do similar work to what I was doing in Guatemala, but through a much bigger institution run by the Catholic church, which was interesting. Um, and so then I left New York again. So I was only in New York for that like year to finish my studies. And then I was right back out again. I couldn't, I couldn't be there. So I went back to Peru and then I was there for this full year fellowship program. And the same thing, I was working in indigenous communities. I was working with local leaders. I was working on mining issues, really seeing, the world from the other side of the globe of what people are really facing in other parts of the world and also understanding the the United States involvement in what was happening in those countries, like all the corruption, all the ways that the U.S. government was giving money to Dole and to big companies that sell produce to, to completely decimate and destroy local farmers in the developing world. All the shit that Americans are just fucking clueless, like literally the average Americans is like America's helping everyone around the globe and like has this like ridiculous story that they've been sold since they were born. America's fighting for freedom around the world. America's building democracy around the world. America's helping poor people in Africa and poor people in Latin America. All these stories that the media has been trained to teach people it's all fucking made up it's all lies like when you go to the developing world and you go to developing countries and you actually see what's going on you understand that the united states has been involved in just a continuous continuization of 
of colonizing these countries and basically enslaving the economies of these countries, giving them loans that they know they'll never repay, taking over their economy, taking over their agriculture, taking over their resources, taking all of what they can from these countries and then leaving them indebted. And then on top of it, doing things to undermine those local governments and then pretending that like we don't have anything to do with it. So my eyes were open to like all of this. And is that when your eyes opened? Is that when your eyes opened? Or I know we were speaking a little before we went live on, you know, your upbringing and in the Catholic Church. But was but was that when your eyes were more open to the global? um, I would say the global side of 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 the ways of the world. Yes. So definitely. That's a good point. So. I had already had some like awareness that things were not what they look like. So like you mentioned, you know, before when I was younger, I went to Catholic school. My parents put me in Catholic school and it was really not a good fit for me. Um, And I remember thinking like something's not right. Like the things that they're teaching us are wrong. Like I was in these Bible study classes where they would say like women are not as good as men or women are, are men are superior to women or women are put here only to support men or, you know, gay people are evil. And there was all these doctrines that they were teaching that I knew when I was little were at like odds with my core of like knowing what was true and what was right. And I remember thinking like, something's wrong. This just doesn't make any sense. And then I went to a very small, very white Catholic school and I saw very few amount of students who were people of color, like Latino, Filipino, black. And I saw the, the racism and the bias toward those students that was allowed in the Catholic school. And I also remember seeing like nuns hitting my friends who were Latino, locking them in closets, hitting them with rulers. And then the white kids that were equally misbehaved, but not getting in trouble or getting into minor trouble, you know, just getting like written up, but not getting like hit and thinking like, what is going on here? Like, again, even as a child, I remember feeling like something is very, very wrong. You know, and because I'm half Hispanic and half white, I had protection because my skin color, but I was always getting in trouble. So I knew I was like, I am the proof in the pudding that I'm doing things and I'm getting in trouble, but I'm not getting in as much trouble as these other kids. Mm. And then my dad would get involved and he took me out of Catholic school because I was a rebel already from like a young age. I was eight, nine, 10 years old. I stood up in class. I think it was fourth grade. And the teacher was making up some nonsense. It was like some crazy lesson. I think it was about, oh, I know what it was. It was about like creationism and God. And like, I was like, but we come from like mama Africa. Like I already studied that stuff. And I knew we all came from the same seed of humanity and evolution and all that. And I was like, this story doesn't make any sense. So anyway, I was very argumentative in a class on religion and science where religion and science got muddled together. And I was like, this, none of this makes any sense. Like, I don't, you could try to sell me this story, but it's not going to work because your story doesn't pan out. Right. Scientifically does not make any sense. And so then my parents took me out and were like, okay, clearly this is not going to get any better. She's just going to get more rebellious as she gets older. And then they put me in public school. Um, and I went to a very, very diverse multiracial high school. And this is in Queens in Queens. Yes. And I loved it. I remember thinking like, oh my God, I can breathe, you know, because I never fit in to that little insular, even though I kind of looked like the white students. Right. I, I never fit in because you have to remember, like I was raised in a house with like 
Puerto Rican abuela. She didn't speak English. She spoke Spanish. I grew up with like loud salsa music and like multiple cousins and big parties and fabuloso like my, on Sunday. Yeah, like my house wasn't like the other kids' houses that I went to school with. You know, some of them, but not many. Again, there was this very small percentage of Latino kids in the school, and my mom knew all of them. You know, my mom was friends with all the Latino kids' moms because my mom spoke Spanish and she got along with them. You know, she's Puerto, my, my mom's 100% Puerto Rican. That brings up something excellent I would want to ask you. What do you yes, know, because you sound, you you are very articulate. I've watched your lives a few times. You are very vocal when it comes to uh, this word inclusion, which I want you to talk more about and, and, and have an integrity uh, in your business. But let me ask you this, since I know I'm specific on words uh, with my podcast and, you know, words are what defines your world. Rather, you have an expansive vocabulary or you lack the expansiveness of vocabulary to define it. Um, You are able to create your world around you through your words. What do you know or are you aware of code switching? Oh, Lorenzo. Hmm. Yes, I know a lot about code switching. So I code switch all the time. I'm a master code switcher. I I could believe it. (laughs) I can get into a very white space, a boardroom of all white people, and I can be more professional and polished and use less less, um, vernacular English, which is not necessarily how I talk naturally, right? And I can get them to feel comfortable and safe with me because I look white enough. I look like them. I sound close enough to them. And I can say things in ways that seem harmless or easy to palate because white people, in my experience, many, not all, take it easy people out there watching, not all, but lots of white people are needing comfort and palatability. They need people that kind of sound like them and kind of talk like them because then they feel safe. If someone's too loud or too Boricua, too Puerto Rican, too black, too this, too that, it gets to be overwhelming and scary and they don't know how to navigate the feelings of fear and panic that come up in response to people that look and sound different. So I'm really good at toning things down enough to get into spaces, to then have a difficult conversation to then have the conversation reach a point where I can name and say what you just said is problematic because of this, or this board is lacking inclusivity because there are no people of color here. Oh, but we have you. If I am your person of color on your board, Houston, we have a situation. Okay. If I am the most ethnic person in your institution, because I'm half Puerto Rican. No, I'm talking about actual dark skinned people are missing from the space. Not ethnic people that look close enough to you and sound close enough to you that they work, right? And this is where it gets into my experience living in Berkeley, which is where, oh my God, it gets really special. Because what I've noticed in my community here in Berkeley, in California, is that if you talk nice and you say things sweet and gentle, you can say really racist, fucked up things. And you can say them with a smile and fancy words. Say, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. See, and I will want you to break this down because once again, I know we had a conversation and how we met was through my energy. I am very sensitive to people's energy and how their intentions or the lack thereof, they would want to hide 
their intentions. But fortunately or unfortunately, those intentions still show themselves if you're aware of it. So say that one more time for anyone that may be like, what did she just say? Because you're very, you're very clear on your words. How would they be racist nice? Yes. So I'll give an example. Uh, my daughter went to a very fancy little Montessori preschool, and this preschool cares a lot about inclusion and having diverse children at the school, except they don't have any experience with connecting diverse families with a whole big mess of white families that all know each other and have known each other forever. So there's a handful of families of color that are brought to the school for diversity and then those families are not necessarily having a great experience. They don't really feel connected with the community. Nobody's really helping them integrate into the community, get to know people again. Everyone else already knew each other forever. And I am listening to these families of color because they feel comfortable with me, right? For reasons that are pretty obvious. I'm open. I talk clearly. I talk directly. People just talk to me. And they tell me, you know, I really tried making good friends here. It feels a little awkward. And so these people of color, these families are telling me their experiences. And I'm like, well, did you talk to the administration? And they're like, yeah, I tried to, but, you know, it didn't really go off well. Or they seemed a little defensive. Well, you know, should I have a conversation? Well, yeah, go ahead. I mean, maybe they'll listen to you, but they're not listening to me. Right. So already there's something going on there. And I'm asking, is it OK if I talk to them about it? Because I'm also noticing it because my husband's Puerto Rican and he's a brownish guy and he's not feeling so cool in the gang either. When he comes to these events, he's not really feeling included or comfortable. It's kind of awkward. And so I go speak to the administration and there's, you know, thank you so much for bringing it to our attention. And we really don't appreciate you going around stirring up the, the diverse families in the school and we're here, we're all about love, and we accept all families. And I'm like, you're, you're not hearing me. I'm telling you that these families are not having a good experience, that they don't feel welcome and included. Yeah, well, then they should just come and tell us themselves. And I, I'm, I'm trying to tell you that the reason that they're not coming to tell you is because they don't feel safe. And this is, and this would be like a business, would this be like a business that has hired you for the purposes of providing inclusion in their business or like, because I, I want to show people how this connects and even have a comprehension for myself, how you really assist businesses. Cause I can, I can see how I could use you for my business. Definitely. Um, I mean, this is a conversation that I've had both with an organization or in this case, this was my daughter's own school where mm. I was volunteering as a parent to help with like family events and, 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 and connection and collaboration amongst the families at the school. So in that example, that's my kid's school. But those are the types of institutions that in the, in the past I would actually work for in helping mm. them see what's going on. But in this case, it was really complicated because I was involved and it was my own kid's school. And sense. I didn't really feel good about the way I was seeing what was happening. My husband wasn't having a good experience. I was talking to them. But the response is very similar to what I've gotten from other organizations, which is like, we don't really see a problem. You know, we, we are kind to all people. We want all people to thrive here. Right. Except that they don't necessarily have any active way of doing that. They don't understand what microaggressions are going on or what exclusions are going on that make people of color feel uncomfortable or feel excluded. They're not willing to see it because they're in this mindset of like, 
but we're all about inclusion. We want all people to feel safe here. Well, just wanting people to feel included and safe is not enough. It's not enough to be like, we just have this intention for everyone to feel good here. I mean, the reality is people feel good when they can show up as who they are right. and be included. Not when they can show up as you want them to show up to be included, which is, again, sounding and acting and looking like what the norm is. You may not realize that that's what you're doing. You may not realize that you've created a culture where people have to show up and act a certain way to fit in, but it's, but that's what you have. You have a dominant culture. This is what I explain to organizations over and over again. Well, we want to bring black women to our networking events. Okay, but... Why? Why do black women want to be at our networking event? How is it for them? Is it about them? When we designed our networking events, do we have any black women in our organization that know what these black business women, uh, what matters to them, what their values are, what's important? How so you really hear students? businesses say that, that they would want black women, for example, I know hypothetically, or maybe you have, but they would have said we will want black women to come to our networking event but and that would be their intentions to get them there but they they don't know where to start like that would be a marketing they've missed the whole like where it starts with why why do you want black women at your event and why should they want to be there what is how is this about them like this is a historically white business association for example our events have been always predominantly white women designed by white women why do we assume that this is a space that black women would feel good and comfortable in? The only way that I can feel safe assuming that is if I bring a black woman onto our board mm-hmm. and then she participates in the decision-making and the design of these events based on her years of knowledge and wisdom working with women of color in the space of business. And then she can give input into how to make the space truly inclusive. A bunch of white ladies cannot design a space that is inclusive for women of color by nature. Do you help assist um, melanated people? I know this is a show of words. So melanated, acubalon, black, brown, people of color, whatever. Yes. Do you assist those individuals in um, being positioned on other boards of companies and businesses that are looking for inclusion? Yes. So I'm part of a large business movement and it's called Conscious Capitalism. And when I first was invited to attend a meeting for the movement, I was invited by my friend who's Latina and she had a good friend that was her co-chair who was a black man. And so when I first joined my first meeting, it was like me, my friend Luz, her friend Michael, who's a man of color. And then there was another woman who was Filipina. So I got the impression that it was like a very diverse organization. I was like, oh, this is great. I really like this group, you know. Then all of a sudden, Luz moved to Texas. Michael got some huge consulting gig. He just got really busy. He couldn't be on the board anymore. And then I was left with just a couple of people, predominantly white men. They were lovely white men, very nice, good people. But the board was not diverse. And then I found out that the organization historically was not diverse at all. That the only reason that that particular group was diverse was because my friend Luz had brought in the diversity, myself and her friend Michael. So I was like, oh, okay, now I'm suddenly in an organization that's historically been white. And they're saying they want this organization to be more inclusive. And here I am going, once again, why? 
why do we want this business association to be inclusive? Oh, because we want to be more equitable. We want more diverse kinds of businesses in our business community. But why? Like, and why, again, like, why do they want to be part of this institution? So I had like that kind of conversation. And then there was thankfully another woman on the board who's amazing, who agreed and 100% was like, I'm actually going to go find a woman of color to take my spot on the board or to, to share my position on the board as part of the core decision making. And that for me was the sign that like, okay, this organization is actually serious about doing something about this. Um, and that happened. And then that person is an expert on diversity and inclusion and has done a lot of work supporting us in seeing how do we become a more inclusive organization. And now we actually have a person of color that's an expert at the board level, but it's still just in this one pocket. This is a national institution. It's a national association. And if you look at the leadership across the nation and you look at the boards, you're going to not see people of color. You're going to see predominantly white people. Um, and we are the Bay area. So we are basically like saying, we're going to change this and set the tone for what it really needs to look like. Because how can you have a conscious business movement without it having inclusivity? Like, and that goes back to how do we define what it means to be conscious, right? So this goes back to all the crazy old white people that are like spiritual and smiling and saying like they have all these nice intentions, but like, what exactly does it look like to be truly conscious in a way that is inclusive and not some type of weird fuckery that doesn't take into experience, take into account the experiences of dark skinned people. Like, unless we are comfortable speaking to and naming that capitalism originally and land ownership was designed to exclude black people and to actually marginalize black people and take advantage of them for the gain of a few people. Right. So that's how it got designed in the first place. It doesn't just accidentally get undesigned that way. It's something that has been perpetuated for a really long time in increasingly more sophisticated ways. Right. But we haven't come so, so far. So if we want to have a truly conscious, inclusive business community, that means we have to find ways to center and benefit black businesses, black business leaders, black decision makers in that universe. And so if you're looking at that universe and you don't see that diversity, how in the hell can it become diverse? So it's a chicken and an egg, right? Because at the same time, why would a black leader or black business expert want to come into a historically white community and then navigate the complexity of being the only person of color there in that space, right? Because that is a lot of pressure. It's a lot of labor. It's a lot of drama. And it's a lot of like dealing with people that may be in fact pretty clueless and causing harm in ways that are again, unintentional. They're well-meaning. They didn't mean bad. But it's exhausting to be around that, right? So then that's not that person's job either as a black person to get recruited into a historically white company or organization and fix the goddamn culture, right? That's not their job. You brought them in as a decision maker to give insights as an expert, right? To give their lived experience and the experience of black business community. Now on top of it, you can't ask them to be like the cultural go-between to smooth out all the complexities. So that's where companies actually need to invest in people that are experts, you know, other people of color that are not trying to work there, that are just outside consultants that can come in and from a 
little bit slightly removed position look at the situation and give their guidance and give their advice and give their strategies for how to make the culture more inclusive so a lot of companies are trying to just like shortcut this shit they don't want to spend money they don't want to hire a consultant they don't want to build a real diversity equity team they want to have some old white lady in a position of an anti-bias if you have an old white lady as an anti-bias person in your organization there is a problem (laughs) there's a problem if your expert in equity or diversity that is working in your company is an old white lady there's something very 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 wrong like even me i can be an expert on one thing only what it's like to be a mixed race ally that's all i know how to be an expert around i know what it's like for me to navigate how complicated it is to be white and going to say and do stupid shit as a white person toward people of color and and be willing to be corrected and not get butt hurt and fragile about it and also to be slightly less white than the average white person and to have a lens of like well I can actually identify more with people of color's experiences because of my own family background right not that I'm the, the person in my family that has experienced bias but like my cousins are brown and I have cousins that have been to prison and my, I have cousins that have murdered their husbands for abusing them and gone to prison for their whole fucking lives because they protected themselves and their children. And if they were fucking white, they wouldn't have gone to prison for their whole life for fucking domestic violence. If they were a white woman that shot their husband for beating them their whole life, they would have been home with their kids, right? If my Thea was white, she wouldn't have gone to prison for that because she would have had a fancy lawyer that kept her out of jail. Right. If if they weren't like my cousin, Ricky, who's Moreno, and he committed a crime when he was a little teenage boy and he did something stupid. Right. He would have got taken care of and they would have saved his life and he wouldn't have lost his life in prison. But because he was a young Puerto Rican, dark skinned kid, he went to prison for his whole life for some stupid thing that he did as a kid with a gun. Yes, it was dangerous, blah, blah, blah. But he was a kid. Right. And so I grew up with that, too. Now, no, I didn't have that experience because I'm white and I had privilege and my father kept me out of that situation, but I grew up right there with it and I saw my own family go through it. So I'm in that unique position to be like, I can understand white people's fragility and fear and like, I don't want to be stupid. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to do the wrong thing. But let me tell you something, white people, you are going to be fucking okay if you say some stupid shit and a person of color corrects you. You can handle it. It's going to be all right. Like you can learn from being given feedback. And that's the problem is like everyone wants to be comfortable and, and PC and, and in trying to be comfortable, we're just perpetuating the same shit. Like we need to like do the difficult work. And the only way to learn is through doing, and you can't do this shit all by yourself in a comfortable space with just other white people. It doesn't work like that. Let's talk about the psychology of that. Let's talk about the psychology of that. Because you you went to college. Did you have any courses in psychology? It sounds like it. I did, but it's been so long. Like, I do remember, you know, studying it and stuff like that. But I don't remember much of it. It's not like I ever went back. That's a good thing, though. That's a good thing. I know you work with conscious business owners and CEOs. And like I say, I'm I'm I am truly a minority. I would be what quote unquote people call conscious, but truly what I tell people, I'm more subconscious because sub the subconscious mind uh, b- deals and moves 
over 90% of your body and it's just like driving you don't really think about it and that's who yes. you and that's who you really are the person yes. you don't really have to think about if you have yes. to think about it it sounds like even in your experiences with like businesses if they have to think about oh we need to uh, have some inclusion and have some black woman here on our board so that more black customers will come so our equity and business will grow and bloop bloop blah blah and all down the road then because you consciously from my perspective you have to consciously think that because you're consciously thinking that that's really who you are not just who you are consciously, but who you are even deeper subconsciously. Because our subconscious creates and develops and moves over 90% of our lives. So speak more about like the the, the psychology that it, it, that's behind um, a person more so what you do because it sounds I know I know what you do and I can grasp like I said I'm over here rubbing my hands together because you have an articulation of vernacular that can be used in a well fitted place in some corporate businesses with some grants and paperwork behind yeah. you I know that you could get some money and extract some revenue in the business world they call but speak more so on the psychology for those that need to really see more of a clarity on how you are effective and can be more effective in your community there in Sacramento and even globally. Because I'm, I, I want to already work with you. Aw, thank you, Lorenzo. I love talking with you because you just keep taking it layers deeper. Like you're so good at asking a question that just makes me go like, ah, it's getting deeper. So yeah, the best questions get the best answers. I know you're so damn good at it. You told me you were. And I'm like, here we go. It's going to put me through my paces. This is such a great um, experience with you. So the subconscious part is complicated, right? Because we have to think about how we got coded with racism in the first place. Like we have to go back to the subconscious level of like, if I'm going to support white people or companies that are lacking in diversity or inclusion to get better at it. I have to understand where their fears come from or their, their um, resistance to doing it and to feeling guilty. Like where does white guilt come from and wh where does all this fragility come from? We have all been coded for years around the black boogeyman and the, the, the people that we should be scared of being brown. Like this has been, a very, very intentional, specific campaign that was created a very long time ago to dehumanize one group of people and make them seem different than other humans. So stories got created. And these stories got created all around the world. I give the example of the Sudan. They actually pitted the Hutu and the Tutsi against each other in Africa by creating up made-up stories that you guys are different and blah, blah. You know, it's a, it goes back to the same thing. So... We have to understand that we have centuries of coding, of bias, of fear, of black skin, of, of dehumanization of black skin. No, this doesn't feel nice to talk about. This doesn't make me feel warm and cozy. Yeah, people it's scared of is. the dark. People it's scared of the dark. Is. It's what is, is what is, what was, and what continues to be, right? So what are the solutions? So we have to do the work to understand our subconscious mind and not be ashamed and afraid to look at what are the 
the fears and the stories that we have around people of color, around being in multicultural groups, these might not be things, again, that are on our conscious mind or that we're acknowledging. These are the things that are scary, that are going on, that we have to do the work to excavate and dig it out and look at it and go, where did that come from? No, I don't like it. I don't want that. But I have to do work to understand it and then to shift the narrative and to rewrite it and to understand it through a new way of thinking. So we have the ability to repattern our minds and repattern the way we perceive things, but it takes effort. It is not some magic wand and it takes difficult, uncomfortable conversations to talk through and walk through those deeper narratives those hidden stories and hidden biases that we're ashamed to say or to admit to then look at them, take them out in the light and then yes, honor and say, okay, that's fucked up. I don't like that. Where did it come from? Right. All these years of programming and the media, I understand why I might think that black people are all criminals, even though I would never say that or why I'm more scared of a black man in the alley than I am scared of a white man, even though how do you know which one is going to pull a gun and shoot you? The white man could be mentally ill and have a gun, and the black man could be on Wall Street, or it could be vice versa. We don't know. But we have a conditioned bias, right, to see a black person and think certain things. How did that happen? So first you have to acknowledge it, that it's there. Bring up the thought. Bring up the story. Get comfortable. Then where did it come from? And then look at it through the lens of data. Is this real? You have to bring facts into it. Oh, the data doesn't actually support that. That's not actually true. Data shows that in the United States, the vast majority of massive violent crimes are committed by white men in mass shootings, for example, just as a random data point, right? (laughs) We're talking data. Not drive-bys. Just talking data specifically, if you want to look at like clusters of large amount of people getting gunned down, the person doing it is usually a white man, right? So that would be an example of like looking at the bias, looking at the shame around admitting that you have the bias, then using data, and then imagining like, I want to change my thought pattern. I want to recode my pattern. So now we have to take said scary black men from data points to like, oh, I'm going to actually get to know lots of black men. Now this is where shit gets crazy and scary. You can't actually shift your biases towards people of color until you actually have like lots of people that are your actual real friends that are people of color. Not like that one random girl you dated in college or like I work with three black guys or like I know a few black people in my community. Like you actually have many, many people that you can sit down at their dinner table and have like lengthy conversations with to understand everything about their lived experience as a black person or a Mexican person or an immigrant or a disabled person. Like you actually know them. And then not just that one guy. Now you continue on the journey of like getting to know lots and lots and lots more black people or lots more Mexican people or lots more immigrants and get to know them and their family stories and all the things. Right. So going back to my neighbors who think, I'm this evil woman that's like being bad to their workers. They don't understand that I'm actually having conversations with their quote workers, but they're not workers to me. They're just people. Mm. And I don't talk to them like they talk to them. I talk to them like regular human beings. They tell me about their family. 
their journey, their child that they had to leave behind in Mexico or Guatemala, the pain of living in a community where you are constantly fearing for your children's life and why you would put your child at risk and strap them on your back and fucking swim across a river. Why would a human being do that? Why? Because you have to listen to their story and understand why they do these things, why they make these choices. Why would a mother put up her child for adoption if she was young and scared? All the things that people do, you can't understand until you listen and talk to them, right? So then there's all these layers. Like you, there's this work of anti-racism and dismantling your fragility, your privilege, your bias, your bullshit. It's not some like, oh, let me take a half hour course and lickety split, I'm all good. It is multiple layers and it's not easy. And that's the problem. People like easy, comfortable shit. They don't want to do complicated, uncomfortable, scary, painful things that cause them to come up against their, their stuff. Like I even did a social experiment with myself. I'll give you an example of myself. Again, full disclosure. I used to be scared of black men hanging out in groups on corners playing CeeLo or whatever they were doing, right? Drinking, drinking a 40. These are bad men. They're going to, they're bad for me. Right. But what I didn't realize was that every time I would walk by a group of black men like that, I would get all scared and nervous looking. So then they would energetically get weird and scared and energetically nervous looking. Right. Cause they're like, Oh my God, a white lady, she's scared of us. And then we're scared them. And it's the whole dynamic that people don't realize is happening because when you're a white person and you're around black people and you're uncomfortable, you project. So I did a social experiment. The, when I moved to Berkeley and I made a conscious effort to every time I walk by a group of black men on a street corner, just relaxing and smiling and just looking at them like open, regular. And lo and behold, the scary black men in these groups all transformed into these like really friendly, soft, lovely men that would say things like, hi, how are you doing tonight? Or it's a really nice night out. Or, And I was like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe they're not scary black men. I'm maybe I'm scared of them. Mm. And then that's something that's triggering them to act differently toward me or around me. But again, the average white person is not thinking that they're literally just like, I'm going to go about my business. I'm not going to look, or I don't know these people, or I'm different than them, or I don't know, or I'm scared of them. Right. So I did that social experiment. And now it's like shown me time and time again, that the way that I show up energetically and project out is going to, influence what I get back. Yeah. And it's and it's crazy because yeah. how many white people are walking around with some type of hold, holding on to some type of fear energy toward people of color, right? Yeah. And then how does that influence a person of color? Well, oh, a scared white person, then they're going to get scared of me and then they're going to call the cops and something bad's going to happen. And it's a vicious cycle. I'm feeling tense. Yeah. You know, and you have all these situations that are happening here in the Bay Area of like calling the cops on this black lady because she's selling water bottles or she's barbecuing at the, at the lake, you know, all these things that white people do all the time doesn't seem scary or bad. But if a black person is doing suddenly it's scary, bad behavior, right? Because we're coded to be afraid of black people. So again, it's all the levels. Like then you're at level six where you're going to have to go out socially and figure that shit out. Like how do I actually show up and engage with people of color? And it's hard. Like, once again, I'm not, I'm not a good example. I had like a very unfair advantage. I grew up with people that are Moreno. So like, I don't have the same level of discomfort. I still have bias. Right. But I'm not uncomfortable in a room full of brown people because I grew up in a Puerto Rican family with brown people. 
but it doesn't mean I don't have bias, which is the problem. A lot of white people be like, well, I know people that are married to a person of color and they are still biased and racist. And they are, they refuse to acknowledge that they still have that bias or racism, or they may have a black child. They may have adopted a black child with the best intentions in the world and still have a lot of bias and not see it because their heart is in the right place. Their intention is in the right place. They love black people. Yeah. You can love black people and still harm them. Yeah, you can, because you can love, you can so-called love yourself and harm yourself. Harm yourself. Yeah. And, and that goes, and that just goes, that goes back to like, um, like perception and things like that. And I know it's coming up at the top of the hour and I I have um, a few specific questions that I did want to get in that was I have for myself and another viewer had asked. So just give me a minute real quick. People of color in business and white people, I work with white people, want to be clear here, that care about doing better and doing business better with people of color. They might not know how yet. It's not the requirement that you be like a Jedi level. It's just at least white people that have some level of awareness of privilege, class, and that they are in the journey of learning how to do business in a more collaborative community with diverse people. Again, they may not have all the answers. and You don't have to. But they at least want that for themselves. And it's a consideration. And that's why people choose me as a business coach over someone else. Because my community is diverse and I speak to that. And it's not easy, right? And I've, and I've had rare situations where someone accidentally gets into my business community or programs where they might be a staunch supporter of policies that disenfranchise people of color. Or they might be saying things that are harmful without realizing it. And if I call them out on it and they're open to the feedback and they're like, thank you for telling me I can do better, then that's fine. But if they're like, um, I don't know what you're talking about, or this is not a problem, or completely clueless and resistant, then it's probably not a fit for me. How do you, so so? how many people do you have like in your circle or community, or do you keep up with that number? Like how many people that do you, are you in your community or your consultation? Like Yeah, good question. In your group. So right now, current clients, I have about, 17, 18 people in my business group program. Um, and then one-on-one clients, I have around five or six. So around 25-ish clients I'm holding right now. Okay. Um, and my goal, so my community historically ebbs and flows between 20% to 40% people of color in my business. My goal is to get to 40%, 50% solid people of color in my business model. Okay. And again, with the goal of building like really effective, deep collaboration and business accountability, mastermind support, win-win between white people and people of color that want to do business in ways that are inclusive and collaborative um, and are willing to do the work to have some of those difficult conversations when they come up. Okay. So here go a difficult or maybe a challenging conversation. I saw on your page we're, we're Facebook friends and I was, I, I, I watch you, I listen and some things that I agree with and some things I don't agree with, I always will bring it up. 
So this was one of the things that definitely posed a question to me. I brought it up to you. You said, oh, well, this would be something excellent to um, speak about when I sit you down for today on interview. So I definitely wanted to bring it up to you, especially since now we're going to be speaking about business. Uh-huh. Question. You had on your Facebook page. It on like it, you know how if a person would see a regular sponsored business entrepreneur, um, it, it's it had that feel to it when I read it. It said, "What are you doing?" Or it said something about you making like seventeen thousand dollars a month, and and you hadn't really made any changes to your business plan or anything. So my question to you is. What are you doing to have a $17,000 a month without selling or promotion? Because from from my business, knowing that everything, any business, you have to have some sort of sales in exchange for money or monetary capitalistic. Because like you said, we live in a capitalistic society. What are you doing? To have a $17,000 a month without selling or promoting. Because to me, immediately that sounded like some flim flam. So what, yeah, that, so what is that? When I posted that, mind you, it says without selling on my page. Meaning mm. I don't make any pitches or sell anything on my Facebook profile page. I don't have any like buy my course or buy my program that I post. And I don't any longer sell through my email list. Okay. Okay. So basically what that means is that my entire business model is grounded in service before sales, which means that my mission is to create so much free content and give away so much value for free through my Facebook page, my email list, anywhere you find me, you're going to find just straight business education. So if you go to YouTube, you're not going to see any videos like, this is my course. You can pay to work with me to buy this course. You'll never see that. All you'll see is these are five strategies to launch your business. This is how you identify your niche. This is how you position your product. So it's just straight free education. So basically everything that I do inside of my paid programs, I take and give away for free through all of my social channels. That way, if you follow me on social media, you do nothing but receive value. If you're in my Facebook group, you watch my Facebook lives, you're going to constantly learn how to build your business, how to grow your business, how to shift your mindset from fear to action. And my goal is for you to receive so much value that if I ask you, are you getting the solution to your business and you're getting what you need? And people will say, well, yeah, I'm getting a lot from you, but I don't have everything figured out. Well, what don't you have figured out yet? Well, I don't have this and this. Then I can just have a consent based honest conversation of like, well, if you're not able to figure it out on your own, just by receiving my free content, would you like to have a conversation with me about working with me more formally? And that person gives me consent and says, yes, then I didn't have to push or sell them into anything because they've already received so much value from me. They already know me. They like me. They know my personality. They trust me. They see that I'm an expert. I've already given them tons of free advice that's already helping them. I have a man that just signed up to work with me. He's a perfect example of an ideal client. He's a person of color. He's an anti-bias educator. He's a consultant. He is an ideal client. He's awesome. He's super outgoing. He's a super cool guy. He's been following me for a month. I never pressured him to buy anything. 
He shows up my Facebook lives, comments. This is so helpful. This is great. Thank you so much for this. He, I, I asked a question, do you struggle with this? He said, yeah, I'm actually struggling with that. I said, well, how are you struggling? Can I send you some more free resources? Sent in the resources. Is it enough for you to figure it out on your own? No, I think I need your help. Okay, great. Let's have a call. So I teach a sales flow process where you don't have to market yourself and hard sell anything because your marketing is focused on just giving away so much value that when people find you on social media and engage with you, they can receive transformation, results, inspiration, wisdom, knowledge, and then that may be enough for some people. And that's great for those people. Well, they don't need you. But if you then ask that audience, with some, are you interested in getting my help more deeply? Do you want to have a conversation? Then you can have a conversation about it. And again, in my sales approach, my conversations are not sales conversations. They're not like, how do I corner you into <laughs> where you're stuck and fear-based and coercion? My sales conversations are so no bullshit. Every single time I'm on a sales call, I will stop in the middle of the conversation and say, do you feel like we're having a sales call? And they'll be like, Oh, right. This is a sales call, right? I'm like, yeah, because it's not a sales call. All I am is telling, talking to people about what they want, why they want it, what's not working. I listen to them. I listen to where their business is. I'm very specific. I'm not this one trick pony. That's like everyone. I get the same formula. I take them through the same conversation. No, every human is unique. And so I listen to their story, where they're coming from, where their unique challenges are. And then I, after I really have listened which is really hard for white people to shut the fuck up and listen. It's hard for me, right? So I listen to the person and then I'm like, first I have to check myself. Can I actually help this person? Do I really believe? And if I really believe I can help that person, I will say, based on what you're telling me, I really believe I can help you with your business. Can I tell you how I can help you? Consent. I get consent for every single step of my business. And that's the methodology I teach. That is what keeps it in integrity. That that's a that that now that made sense. Something clicked. I've worked with some people that did like online sales, marketing, advertising, promotion, or whatever. And because I find my mastery in talking to you face to face, eye to eye, soul to soul, before all this pandemic stuff was going on. I could I could literally create a lifestyle from selling wristbands. Literally, I was selling wristbands. Um, so I grasp that that is is definitely a difference. Who are who specifically? Then once again, just go over people because we we speak in business. Who specifically then are you able to help or what would be what would be a specific client to look like? I get that they would be um, uh, of ethnic diversity. They would be melanated brown. But what other like what any kind of business, anybody that's really like looking to scale their business that are in a cult, a consulting, coaching, arena, financial services, consulting <clears throat> services, anything that is a service, not a, a any product. service. Because okay. a product is very different. <clears throat> and like, I do know a good amount of business. I could, in theory, help someone with a product business, but just informally, you know. But what I'm truly an expert at is 
if you have the desire to use your lived experience, your wisdom, your knowledge to help other people transform their life, their health, their business, their finances, their relationships, their personal development, their spiritual development, if you have a desire to work with people around transformation in that way, and you want to have a solid business model and a way to, quote, market yourself that doesn't feel salesy, salesy. Yeah. You know, those are my ideal clients. Like, okay. you know. Could be as simple as financial services, you know, but like you want to stand out from other people in your industry. You want to be seen as an expert and as an expert that is grounded in integrity first, like someone that people see as an authority, as trustworthy, as someone that really delivers something of value. So first you have to do the inner work to own your expertise and know really what your lane is, what type of expert you really are, you know truly understand that even if you don't have a fancy degree or work at a fancy company that you could have years of wisdom and life experience that are incredibly valuable and then you work with your, you know I'll work with people around that as well in terms of like creating a brand story that really narrates why they are the expert at what they're an expert in and then I help you really elevate your offer so people tend to have a something a business offering they may have put together and it might be strong but I'm going to help you elevate your offer to like exceptional. I'm going to look at the offer, the format, the way you work with clients, the way you get a result and really make sure it's, it's rock solid and it's, and it's good. And then from there, then we look at how do we nurture people up to being interested in that offer by giving them significant amounts of value that you would give them if they were your paid client, you're going to give that value away for free through your marketing, through your content, through whatever you put out. It's they can actually try before they buy. They don't have to guess why you'd be great to work with. You're going to show them exactly why through your content. Um, and we create an abundant free-to-VIP ladder, which free-to-VIP is giving people so much free value that they're very confident and they are excited to take the next step up the ladder to becoming a paid VIP client. You don't have to pull them or drag them or shove them up the ladder. To get there, they feel like I'm ready to take next step because you gave me so much value here. I want to know what's up there. I want to know what's next for me and working with you. So I teach what I call these like critical acceleration frameworks. Like I'm a business geek. Okay. I've for, for nine years, I've analyzed everything about business marketing, online space. You know, I've developed courses for UC Berkeley. I tore apart really crappy programs, got rid of bad instructors, brought in great people from Silicon Valley, from startups, from accelerators, you know, brought in diverse instructors, fought to get them to bring in people without a master's degree and said, why does this guy need a master's degree? He's been running businesses forever. Just bring them in. And I became a student of like every single nuance of business. And the thing that I came to the conclusion at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how fancy you get with lingo and strategy. Business is about authentic human relationships, period, mm. end of story. You have to be willing to put yourself out there and be real. Don't try to create some weird, glossy brand with all these fancy pictures. Yes, it's nice to be polished and professional, but people don't buy from a fancy, polished brand. They buy from someone that they know, like, trust, and that has already shown them that they are the right person and can give them the value they need. And so if your audience is other people of color and you're trying to look like some other white person in the business world because you think that's what it's going to look like, you might actually not be attracting your ideal clients. 
because you might not resonate. Maybe you're coming across too a certain way. And it's, you know, it's like, we literally need to speak the language of our ideal clients, which is why I tend to be no bullshit. And I tend to be like very honest and real because I want clients that are honest and real that are no bullshit or that are looking to be more so like that because they're not looking to be in the world of business where it's all about like psycho marketing and fear-based selling and getting people to buy something because they think if they don't buy it, something bad will they happen or they won't this. So you, so you was talking about that. See, that's what I, I, I was listening to, and I totally agree with you on, is that nowadays, especially call it twenty twenty, clear vision, whatever, um, that people see that right now, even more so, maybe even after the toilet paper craze, that fear, that fear based marketing is really going done jumped out the window and is 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 on its way to its death right now like so what is what would be i would definitely agree with you being real and authentic would be the next wave so really my question is and i think you're about to answer it do you work with newer entrepreneurs as well like people that just now getting into the business space that are wanting to develop um from the beginning that that inclusivity, that that all togetherness, that almost I would want to call it new age approach, but that that world of Aquarius. That do you work with? Do you work with people that are already there or wanting to be there, like new to the business arena? That's a great question. So, I historically, when I started, I worked with more startups, people that were just with an idea and wanted to launch a business. And that is a very specific support that people need. Now, if people are just starting out in business, what I'm going to do is I just want to give them access to all my templates and business tools to get started on their own for free. Because when people are starting a business, they usually can't afford to invest a whole lot in a coach. So what I prefer to do with my business model is just make my content accessible. I have a three-part masterclass training, tons of business templates that people can get started on, look at their customer discovery, their avatar. And I like to give people tons of stuff for free. Once you arrive at a point where you have a pretty solid business idea, you've figured out who your ideal niche might be, and you've got some idea about your own strengths, then you would work with me mm. and invest in my first level program. Because again, I don't want people in the early stages to invest a whole lot. There's also a lot of other programs that I could recommend that are less expensive than working with me. So again, because I'm a coach that's in integrity, if someone's just starting out, I have like two or three other coaches that have cheaper programs than mine that are just for starting out. And I'm happy to refer them there or just give them access to my business resources and content. And if they feel like that's enough to get started, and then they want to have a conversation with me. That's usually how I would address it. Okay. But I do work with people that, for example, you want to start a consulting business and you've been like, you've done a lot of that work for years, but just informally. Yeah. Like in, like maybe let's take a perfect example of like a woman of color that worked in the nonprofit sector for years. She's a great leader. She's got tons of experience with organizations and people. She's really amazing with leadership. And she wants to now launch her own leadership consulting business to to consult to other nonprofits to teach them leadership. Right. That I probably would say is a good fit because she's not starting from nothing. She has like years of expertise and we're just going to package it and launch it as a consulting offer, but she's already been doing it. 
for many, many years, right? So that's like a type of client where I would probably take on that they're a little more early stage, but it's not a heavy lift because again, they're already coming to me with so much wisdom that I'm like going to ask them questions and it's going to become clear to me like, oh, you know your stuff. We just got to put together a business offering. Got you, got you, got you. you know? Got you, got you. So you, so you working with polished business owners, those that's already getting um, already there, have an idea. Otherwise they can follow and grow on their own with the free material that you're already putting out there. And, and if they need an extra consultation, you provide that service for them as well. Exactly. But really it's people that are like, they've had a business for a little while. They know that they've got something, but it's not growing fast enough is usually my ideal client. Like they have been in business, they've been trying it and it's not taking off. And they're like, lost or confused around like where do I really spend my time and energy and my business and my money to get my business to the next level and that's where I start with what's called the business diagnostic I have that person do like a complete evaluation of all the areas of their business starting with their mindset their personal brand their values do they have an offer they do that whole evaluation with me then we have a call and then I will help them see like what's missing where are your gaps in your business model and usually the gaps are like sufficient online presence and then the free to vip is usually like they're missing a solid enough foundation of their free to vip and then sales usually they're struggling with sales or closing sales so i'll figure out exactly what's going on and then i'll let them know how i'm going to help them with those specific pieces okay so let's tap on sales real quick because i do know that if you have no business without sales and i appreciate you once again that is that is a excellent breakdown of how you share um quality valuable information people can use and then really it's the psychology behind well if i've shared that with you just think of all the other knowledge and information you don't know that i haven't shared with you nor mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense totally makes sense so what are what are the um what are the services what is your free to vip uh, frameworks like because i know it's some sort of sales in it so what what's the what's the free to vip frameworks break that down for me um, well, I have to get off soon, so I'm going to tell you a little bit, and then okay. I'm going to give people a way to access the actual Oh, yeah, totally. Oh, be- before you go, before you get off, t- let everybody know how they can get in contact with you, because I know you have a whole lot of that uh, links and information. Let everybody yes. know. So, basically, um, the way you would get access to my resources, you would text text your full name and the word GIFTS. And then um, after they text the word gifts and their full name to 415-859-4342, and then they will receive access to my platform. And on my platform, there's going to be training videos, coaching tools, and then you can access a training around free to VIP where I break it down. And then there's going to be an actual link to the template for free to VIP, which is basically how you build a foundation of free content, free training, webinars, Everything in your social presence, Facebook Live, Instagram, YouTube, whatever you're using, that's giving people enough free content so that they feel confident. Thank you. So that they feel confident taking the next step and you don't have to push them. They've already received so much from you 
that they feel really solid with you, that they know you're for real, that you know you're all about helping them first and that you might be able to help them get to the next level. So if you text your full name and the word gifts to that number, you'll get access to the link to my platform. And then on my platform, you can cruise around and there's tons of free content and we're uploading 10 more free business templates to that um, website. So my goal is to make it as accessible to as many people as possible. Okay. One more time. The number one more time. For people that's um, writing I it like put me. it in the chat. So 415-859-4342. So I'm gonna we can put it also in the Facebook Live in the description. And I'm gonna also leave it in the description um for, on my podcast uh broadcast platform show. So y'all check it out in the descriptions. I know you're a busy busy woman, Bridget. I definitely appreciate you. For sitting down, sharing some of your time, definitely your information. I can see how you have a growing business um, because if you're giving away all the information and more that you've given tonight, I do. I give away a lot. Then, then I'm a person like myself that's still growing a business. I have already gained. I have. I always believe think in ink and you've given me a lot of your mind and time. So I definitely appreciate it. Once again, um, share with your like your social media links so that people can contact you or see or uh, get some more of that free information that you have. So if they text that number that I put in the chat, they're going to get access to my entire platform. It shows them how to join my Facebook group, where to find me on LinkedIn where to find me on Insta, everything is there. It's all in one central. I have, it'll send you a link and you open it up on your, on your phone and it's a web-based platform and it'll, it'll have every single thing for you to connect with me in one place. Perfect. We're going to keep it simple, stupid, kiss them and leave them nice. Absolutely. Yeah. My, my, my mentor, Manny Lopez created this app for me and he's an awesome guy that's um, building business and giving back to orphans and children that are aging out of the foster care system. So he's my mentor and he's doing some good stuff in the world. So. Well, I definitely appreciate you uh, sitting down. Thank you, Manny and everyone else for showing up. Uh, Definitely make sure you show your support, show love, um, sow a a seed of love. We're always growing. We're getting new microphones, new technical supports and all of that. And also providing us more platforms to reach out to for with people like Bridget that have valuable information and news you can use. So we definitely appreciate it. Y'all have a wonderful rest of your night. Thank you, Lorenzo. It was great talking with you and we'll follow up soon, okay? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, sitting down with us. Absolutely. Have a great night, dear. You do the same. Okay, take care.